Hey everybody, welcome back to The Hustle. It's John Lamoureux. All right, this is a big week for me. We get to hear from one of my all-time favorites, the great Marshall Crenshaw. This was actually a very cathartic conversation for me, as I think you'll hear over the course of the interview. I came into this with a lot of questions and confusion and things I wanted to know and understand better about him and his career and why he is who he is and why he isn't a household name. In fact, I probably annoyed the heck out of him during this whole thing, but it worked. It worked for me, and I would explain it more to you in greater detail, but you're listening to Someday, Someway, his biggest hit, and it's not a very long song. So I'll save the summary of that until the end of the interview. Anyway, we talk about uh, something that had happened recently, shortly after this conversation, His second album, Field Day, which is probably my favorite of his, was remastered and re-released on vinyl. Reason one million and three, why I wish I collected vinyl, but I don't. So go out and check that out. There's also a fairly new EP that was on iTunes. He seems confused as to what it is or why it's there, but I bought it recently and it's good. So check that out. But anyway, we just lay out his entire career, the reasons for certain things, the motivations, the ups, the downs. It meant a lot to me. I love him so much. And I hope I didn't annoy him too much. (laughs) He called me from his home a couple hours outside of New York City. Like I said, I, I know you've done a lot of these podcasts, and you're one of my favorite artists ever. And so I've thought for like over two years now about reaching out to you to come on mine, and I thought, oh, I don't want to bother him. He, he seems like he's really um, friendly with his podcast time. I've heard him on other podcasts, and he probably thinks, I'm so sick of all these jokers asking me to be on podcasts. And so I never did it. And then mm-hmm. a couple of weeks ago, I thought, wait a minute, I guarantee you I'm a bigger fan than Mark Marin is. Why shouldn't he be on my podcast? So I took my stones in my hand and I reached out and now here we are. So thank you for agreeing to do this with me. Hey, no problem. You know, I'm in, I'm in show business, so I'm supposed to go around talking about myself. <laughs> well, lucky for you, there's so. lots of people who want to hear it, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm, I, I, well, good. Yeah. I hope so. Uh, oh, yeah, absolutely. So i got to tell you, I usually kick these things off with how I discovered the person that I'm talking to, and I have a very specific memory of yours. Because I was in a Borders in, remember, good old Borders, rest in peace, in about two, year 2000, and uh, it's Friday and it's payday, and I don't have anything to do. So I'm kind of, what do I feel like, I just got paid, what do I feel like buying? And I take, I decide that I'm going to buy Iggy Pop's Lust for Life, which is one of my top five favorite albums of all time, and a greatest hits, a Stray Cat's greatest hits album. And I take them up to the counter, and on the counter is a display for Marshall Crenshaw, This Is Easy. For whatever reason, it's speaking to me on this counter display, you know? So I thought, what the heck? I'm in the mood for trying something new. Let's do it. So I bought it, and I just basically became obsessed. And shortly after that, I realized that (laughs) this is really minutiae, I know, but... Shortly, before, shortly after that, I realized that I had read this really glowing review of that album in Entertainment Weekly. And do oh, yeah. uh, you remember this? I don't remember the review exactly, no. Okay, but... well, you got, a, you got a good review. And so I, I pieced together, oh, I, was, I remember the name, and I remember thinking, I've got to get my hands on some of this guy's music, and here it was, and I've been obsessed ever since. So that's the little story there. Now, yeah, Borders was always, you know, friendly to, to me. Sure. Uh, 
And yeah, you reminded me that they did get behind that record. I remember going to the corporate corporate headquarters in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and meeting people there. Oh, you did that doing that whole thing, you know? Yeah, I used to work for Tower Records in their uh, corporate offices in Sacramento, and we would have you know artists would come through and play, you know, two songs in the conference room with while everyone eats pizza and stuff. You know what I mean? And, I probably um, did that too, you know. I mean, <laughs> there's just a long list of those things that I know I did over the years. Tower oh, Records, a couple of different things. Yeah, uh, I, I remember believe playing it. at the at the <clears throat> the Columbus Circle Tower Records. I remember mm-hmm. playing mm-hmm. in store there. Absolutely. The one in uh, Japan, someplace. Oh, I don't wow. know, you know. Miscellaneous. Okay. So just today, in fact, I watched a, a concert of yours that was on YouTube from the Ritz. In 1985, July of 85, and here's this young Marshall Crenshaw. Downtown has just come out, and you're playing to a packed house. And then I, after that, I watched a concert from about a year ago, something I think called 20 Summers. not sure what it was, but it was you and an acoustic guitar in a very small, intimate room full of people. And I thought, I wonder which one of these Marshall prefers. I wonder if Marshall ever... Feels nostalgia for those older, you know, younger, hungry days of like every album comes out and this could be the thing that changes my life forever. Or if you're more comfortable where you are now and like, man, I'm so over this business, I'm just going to do what I want to do. Oh, God. Uh, I guess I'd have to say that I prefer being a mature person mm-hmm. who's, uh, you know, sort of understands how the world works and uh, I don't know um, I mean it was fun all that stuff back in the day but there was a lot of pressure too a lot of self-inflicted pressure and then a lot of pressure from outside I mean I wouldn't change anything you know I I Uh really wouldn't but I mean I still get up on stage and play with a rock and roll band the show that you mentioned the the one from uh, last summer summer before last that, that was a solo show Mm-hmm. I remember the joint, you know, it was mm-hmm. really beautiful little space in Cape yeah. Cod. Oh, okay. Uh, that stuff is nice, but, I mean, uh, fortunately, I, I, do, I do really still love to get up and play with a rock and roll band, and I'm so okay. glad that I have uh, the strength still to do it, you know? Yeah. I mean, I know that there's a sell-by date or an expiration date on that, sure. but I don't see it anywhere in sight right now. Uh, you know, I, I, I guess my answer is that, is that I, can, is I can't figure out an answer to the question. <laughs> <laughs> I stumped Marshall Crenshaw. Um, you know, it, I've only been able to see you once, and I live in Denver, and it was about 10 years ago, and it was just you and the guitar, and you yeah. played in uh, this place, and I, I think it's called Swallow Hill. I can't remember. It's like a converted church. It's an old church. Oh, yeah, now yeah, a little yeah I remember venue. that show. It was yeah. me, and, me and somebody else. Uh, uh, don't tell Ellis- me. Paul. Oh, sorry. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Of course, yeah. That, yeah. And that was good. It was a really good. Yeah, night. that was a beautiful show, and that was years of pent up anticipation. Finally, being able to see you on my part that night, I was so grateful. So I've only really seen the stripped down, more intimate Marshall. I've never had the full, you know, gr- uh, rock band experience. But that still goes on. You still put on those kinds of shows. Yeah, <clears throat> about. Six years ago, I started doing tours with the Bottle Rockets. Have you ever heard right. of them? Uh-huh. Because of through They're you. Really a, yeah. a 
superb rock band, and we teamed up about six years ago. Every year since then, we've done some touring. Oh, good. I haven't ever gotten to Denver, but uh, there you go. And mm -hmm. uh, and then just last uh, month, I did 15 shows with a band called Los Straight Jackets, mm -hmm. which is a, another great rock and roll band. Mm -hmm. And then I have shows with them in August and also September. September's the West Coast. We're going to go okay. start in Phoenix, Arizona, and work our way up to Vancouver. Nice. So, uh, no, I do it. I, it's okay. it's funny that I don't get to Denver very often, Yeah. either with a band or by myself. But right. anyway, I play 12 months a year usually, or like yeah. 10 months a year, every year for, since forever. Yeah. I knew you did. I knew you were still out there. I didn't know if the rock, more rock-oriented shows were sort of um, the outliers, you know, and that you were mostly concentrated on the more smaller, intimate shows. But that's good. <laughs> Hopefully it's one of these days I can catch one of them. It's about 50-50 these days, or, or okay. maybe even more like 60-40, but I'm mostly okay. playing with with bands these days. Good, okay. This, I like it better, honestly. Good, okay. So I have a question I've always wanted to ask, and it is, why are there not more Marshall Crenshaw videos? In fact... Videos? Yeah, because, you know, you came up, you're birth and mtv's birth are almost the exact same and so i in fact i didn't think there were any and i double checked recently and there is one for whenever you're on my mind That was the only, like, you know, professionally produced and directed video that I could find. Everything else is like a live concert here and there. Was that never – am I missing something? Was that Or was that never a priority for you or what? Well, there was one for this tune called Little Wild One. Oh, but, okay. Uh, you know, Sorry, I put on.
I, I probably shouldn't even have said that. You know, the fact that you don't know about it. Because now I'm going to go to the It's not a problem for me, you know. It was just... Uh, but uh, let me see. Yeah, we made that one for whenever you're on my mind. We went over to England yeah. and made that one and uh, dressed up as pirates. Uh-huh. Yeah, MTV was pretty friendly to us in the beginning, but I don't know. None of that lasted very long. We just kind of had our little flirtation with mass culture that lasted i guess you could say it lasted from about 1982 till around 1987 it was pretty right. much over by then after la bamba yeah that was it was kind of uh you know just kind of wound down after that okay because yeah. i never understood that it seemed i mean i didn't see them i mean maybe they're i don't think someday some way has a has an official video and I just thought, if this is a young guy, young hot guy that everyone is so critically acclaimed and so high on, every you know, Warner Brothers thinks this is the next, whatever, uh, Beatles or something. Where are the videos? If that was the way to mass market a, an act like you, lesser yeah. known artists than you had, you know, three or four videos per album back in the day. And yet well, there's there only a, a couple. There was, an, there was an official video for someday, some way, but it wasn't like a. Wasn't it you, know, you it was, just it live? Was just us playing, hello, yeah. It was just us playing the song live okay. on stage, which is fine, you know. I mean, that's, sure, of course. That'll work. But I, I don't know. Like Our relations with Warner Brothers turned sour pretty quickly, frankly. Really? That was really, uh, really, that's really the answer to all that is they just okay. weren't, weren't willing to spend the money. Got it. Okay. After a certain point, I remember I had one meeting with somebody about doing a video for uh, something off my... I had an album in 1987. It was released around the same time as the La Bamba soundtrack. Mm -hmm. And I did have one meeting with a, like a new department head at Warner's about doing a video for that one, but it was not It was mm -hmm. a pretty uh, contentious meeting. Really? <laughs> like it was kind of a... You know, it was just a yeah. prick. Oh, and, no. uh, Anyway, that's the that's uh, what happened is you know I got I got signed to the east you know by the East Coast mm -hmm. division of Warner Brothers, which I didn't know it at the time, but you know they really just had to kind of fight for everything, mm -hmm. for every little thing. There was a like a hierarchy at the label, you know, it's like everything really all the important decisions really came out had to signed off on in Burbank and I just got off on the wrong foot with people out in Burbank really yeah yeah oh, it's just, bad. just that's it that's the whole story okay. see I feel like and forgive me if I'm I mean I've loved you for years and so I've created my I know that there's a lot of this kind of lore around your early career and I've sort of created my own you know mythology around it and I've always assumed that here's this here's this guy that everyone agrees is so talented and so amazing and writes such great music, but yet it, it's breaking through a little. It's not completely like taking the world by storm. And each album, while still maintaining the same level of quality, I can't tell if, if Warner Brothers is like, we have this asset and we don't quite know what to do with it, or if they're growing tired of it's like, we don't. I'm kind of over Marshall Crenshaw at this point. It sounds like there are, there were some, there was some tension going on there that led to maybe some of these albums or some of the promotion being less than it should have been. 
Yeah, I guess so. I mean, it, okay. it, it just again, it just uh, <laughs> I don't know. It just it uh, kind of started off. It started off awkward and then got worse, and that's okay. uh, Weird. really kind of the way it went. Although, I mean, I did have some friends in Burbank. I had some friends that are still friends, you know. Good. But uh, you just you know, I had a I had a kind of an inexperienced manager in the beginning. Mm-hmm. And between the two of us, we just managed to, you know, sort of like, uh, anyway, yeah, it was yeah. kind of okay. a train wreck, really, frankly. Okay. Now, I know um, I know you get asked about field day a lot, and that's probably my favorite. It goes, I change a lot, but I think that's my favorite Marshall Crenshaw album, probably because I love Steve Lillywhite so much, too. So, see, again, going back to this mythology, there's a, a part of me thinks, well, Warner Brothers is like, okay, the first album did pretty well. We got to toughen this guy up. Let's get Steve Lillywhite in here, and then we'll really take it over the edge. Or was that more of like a rebellious move? What went into the thinking behind it? I, a, it was nobody's idea but mine. Oh, okay. B, it was uh, simply that I wanted to work with him. I mean, Good. there was just no more to it than that. You know, like yeah. I, I, uh, I did my first album, and. Uh, there's a lot of layering and overdubbing. Like, <clears throat> the, I worked with a producer named Richard Goderer. Mm-hmm. I'm, st- you know, I'm still kind of. I, last time I saw him, we were really glad to see each other. That was about three oh, years good. ago. Good. Yeah, I was. I was actually really happy to see him. Good. And uh, you know, so I guess we're still pals and all that. Good. He's all come up stuff, on but, here uh, before. <clears throat> you know, his, his, the first thing we would do was, you know, we would track the bass and drums. I think they would they were recorded together simultaneously, but then you know like I just would do a scratch guitar and we'd do that and then and then after that he would say, "Okay, I want you to put down six acoustic guitars mm. for some thickening that was his term he said we need some thickening so i would you know I'd do it but but then after 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 it was all said and done, I was like, well." You know, I don't really hear my guitar. Like, I hear guitars on the uh-huh. record, you know, but it's not me. It's like it's just a bunch. Mm-hmm. It's it's sound, mm-hmm. and I and I I am the guy that played it all, but it's just like it's not. So anyway, the next time around, yeah. I wanted to to use a different approach. I didn't want to have a bunch of layering of instruments. I wanted to hear the band, okay. and just really hear the the you know the separate instruments in the band, but. Okay. Uh, I just figured that you know I'd heard a lot of Steve's records, yeah, and I knew that there weren't many instruments on them, but they still sounded really you know magnificent and mm-hmm. larger than life and all that stuff. Yeah. And I thought this is the guy, this is exactly the guy, and uh, so we got together and we immediately hit it off personally because Steve is a very warm fella, warm person, yeah. and you know very charming, and that was it. It was just like he was the only producer I talked to. Mm-hmm. I, I knew that he was brilliant. He was exactly the guy that I wanted to work with, and that was it. But the thing was, uh, you know, like my A&R person in New York was this woman named Karen Berg, the late Karen Berg, mm-hmm. and I uh, have very fond memories of her. She knew who Steve was, and she got what I was on about. You know, she understood mm-hmm. But it was kind of a enigma to the people in Burbank. They didn't know who he was. 
didn't understand really? why I wanted to make didn't want to didn't understand why I wanted to make a record that sounded like that. You know, it was they just yeah. it, they just had a sort of like a a different set of ideas in their mind about whatever what it was be, and then, um, yeah. What they but have signed. I, but, so then after the fact, you know, people would say like, Oh, he must have gotten led down the garden path by somebody or, or mm. something or or this was imposed on him. But none of that is true in the you know, and the whole controversy about the album you know, now that there's a reissue coming out of the album, mm-hmm. you know, like all these sort of old wounds have been reopened. Mm. I, I haven't been going around like thinking about this. Mm constantly you know for 35 years but i'm just sort of like back in that you know like like it's been refreshed in my mind Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. all the controversy about the album i i never i I thought it was you know really crazy and stupid at the Mm -hmm. time the reaction to it was just complete i didn't get it then and i still don't get it you know i think it is a great rock and roll record and it's was exactly the the right record for me to make it came from me and from nobody else and you know like i I, hearing it again i just remembered how much how proud of it i was and how much how much i loved it you know i was almost like Phil, after after that whole thing, I was almost like Phil Spector after River Deep Mountain High. You know, I was like, well, you know, I tried to give you something great. Fuck you, world. You know, <laughs> and I was, like, I was that would feel death, honestly. But you, well, you nailed it, and I think time has proven this. I mean, most Marshall Crenshaw fans, uh, that's a pretty active debate. You know, the first album versus the second album. That's usually, I don't know how you feel, care or feel about it. Those are usually the two up for the discussion, like which one is the best? Which one do you go back to, even though all of them are great? So time has proven that your instincts were right. Whether it underperformed at the time or didn't do what somebody wanted it to, history has shown that you did the right thing. Don't you think? I do, yeah. I, Good. I feel exactly that way. And, uh, Good. You know, it's, it's, in its own way, it's had longevity, yeah, I don't have any. Uh, Good. There's no, there's no uh, ambiguity in my mind about it, you know. Good. I'm, you know, um, I'm curious. I'm a, I'm a huge Lily White fan, especially the stuff he was doing in the '80s with bands like Big Country and Simple Minds and U2 and all that kind of stuff. Was there? I'm curious what you heard of his that made you decide he was the man for you. Yeah, it was. Um, well, the records. Uh, Generals and Majors by XTC is one that got played mm. in the in the clubs where we used to play. You know, there was yeah. a, I guess it was a, I guess it was a single. Yeah, for them. that was we a big one. And then him on I will Dave follow Gregory's by U two is another yeah. one. There you go. Yep. You know, just those really mainly those two, but everything okay. like all the like many of the XTC records that he did mm-hmm. were. were Things that I heard on the radio in New York, the stations that I listened to, the clubs that I went to, played those tracks a lot. Good. And uh, I don't okay. know what else. Hong Kong Garden by Susie and the Banshees. Mm, nice. Just you know a lot of great records that I liked sure. back then. I haven't okay. listened to. I haven't listened to any of them. Well, maybe I, I have heard the XTC stuff more recently. You know, I haven't listened to the other ones I named. I haven't heard those since back then, but. I mean, it just really—they really struck a struck a chord cool. with me, you know. Interesting. We just had Dave Gregory from XTC on the show. He was such a good man. Uh, you know day. what? Uh, Andy Partridge and I 
were born not uh, just on the same day of the you know same month. We have the same birthday, uh-huh. but we were also born during in the same year. And so we really, were the exact same on, day. No, yeah, November eleventh, nineteen fifty-three. <laughs> oh, that's killer! Oh man, nice. Okay. Well, good. Okay, I've always wondered what the story with Field Day is. That's great. So after Field Day comes Downtown, which is an equally also a great album, and then Mary Jean and Nine Others. And each one, as I said, how are you feeling as this stuff is happening? When, when I'm looking at the guy performing on stage at the Ritz in 1985 and Downtown has just come out, and are you thinking, because right or wrong, I feel like, again, some of the the mythology around your career is that it wasn't it wasn't landing like people thought it would. Are you in the while it's happening, are you thinking are you feeling des any kind of desperation? Oh, I'm on a label that doesn't like me, I don't work well with them, they don't get my music. Or are you thinking, I'm just doing the best I can and I love what I'm putting out here right now and I don't care who likes it or doesn't like it. No, I was pretty I was pretty dispirited. Were you like I was kind of in a box that I couldn't get out of in certain ways. But then, you know, when, I, when it came time to do the work, I really always gave it everything I had, you know. Yeah. And yeah. I just kept going back and doing that and doing that and doing that. But, you know, just after a while I realized that show business is rough. It's a minefield. Mm-hmm. The fact that I got anything out of it is a miracle, really. Yeah. And that's really true, you know. I mean, mm-hmm. you just kind of got to get out there and, you know, just there's, there's no there's no law book, a rule mm-hmm. book. There's no roadmap. There, you know, some some people go through it and they don't come out the other side in one piece. Yeah, very true. So there's just a lot of ways to go wrong, but you know, I just. Okay. I mean, I uh, I guess I. I I don't. I don't know. This, also, I can look back and say, well, maybe this thing that I did was kind of a mistake, or the way that I said that to this person, or the, like the choice mm-hmm. that I made was a bad choice. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. like it wasn't all just stuff that happened. They were like, I, I, let's see. I figured this out. I, I came up with a little formula at one point. Oh. I said sometimes I was clueless. Sometimes I was careless, and then sometimes I was unlucky. <laughs> it was like either one of those three things. That's awesome. You know? Okay. But anyway, okay. I, you know, I just like I just I know, I know that the work I did was good. You know, oh, yeah. some of it, I, some of it I, I I like better than some others, but some things okay. I like better than some others. But yeah, when you, you know. look back on Mary Jean and or um, or Good Evening, those late '80s albums, when it's kind of you know, your time at Warner Brothers is coming to an end. Do you, I mean, you stand by those albums? You're proud of what you put out there? Well, I, again, I know I did the best I could do. Okay. And okay. That, uh, you know, and also I know that uh, <clears throat> that there's a singularity about this stuff, you know. Mm-hmm. Like there's a, there's like a sound and a feel that my stuff has that it just yeah. is a thing unto itself. I know that. Okay. You know, so I yeah. just again, I'm just you know, I'm glad that I was able to do what I was able to do, and okay. that I got, and that I got something out of it that yeah. you know has has lasted. That's great. Okay, now life's too short, which is uh, 
That's another man. I keep wanting to say one of my favorite albums, but I I could say that about all of them. I really love that one too. And there's a noticeable you're on a new label. There's a noticeable amping up of you know the rock quotient in your music. There's a certain appeal to danger and pain When she whispered those words I said, what's your name? Right then I knew in my heart That we shouldn't start But there you go But she messed up my mind She looked so fine I just had to You've grown your hair long, you know, which never had before. <laughs> yeah, there you go. That was yeah. that wasn't that was very unwise. <laughs> was it? Well, I mean, you know, there, that was the, well. That's another thing. Like you mentioned that Ritz, that Ritz uh, uh-huh. MTV show. And if you see the, if you look at the clip on YouTube, which I did about, so I, I would never, I was like never, uh, I would avoid kind of hearing my own stuff. Mm-hmm. And then one day uh, I caught my son <laughs> uh, when he's about nine years old. He was sitting in front of our family uh, laptop and he was watching that concert. And I just started kind of watching and listening, and I was like, "Actually, this is this isn't bad, and this is really yeah. like sort of sort of like really quite good, you know." Mm-hmm. So I, I listened and watched, and I thought, "Okay, fine, you know." But I noticed that whenever I turned my back to the camera, you could see a bald spot on the back of my head, <laughs> and I thought, "Well, that's you know, that I ran out of youth." <laughs> that was the other thing, you know. But like I start, I yeah. started kind of late, you know. I was in. Uh, I was 28 when my first album came out, and then, you know, show business was, like, something that I was ambivalent about right away, and I sort of got, uh, you know, it was stressful and everything like that, you know, before you know it, there's a bald spot, you know, so (laughs) that was the thing. Yeah, I ran out of of youth. I get it, I get it. That's funny you say that. I'm a bald guy, too. I, I feel you on this. Um, so life, so life's too short. I mean, again, was this sort of a calculated move to amp everything up? Were you just in the mood to make a rock record? Did MCA put any pressure on you? Like, look, we, we like, we want you here, but we need you to rock more. Nobody ever did that to me. Honestly, nobody ever told me, well, let me take, let me dial that back a little bit. I think the record where sort of like I felt that I was under the most scrutiny was downtown. Mm-hmm. But, you know, still in all, I, I did have an agenda, and I was able to mm-hmm. follow that agenda. But uh, that was the first time. On the first two records, it was my own little sort of self-created world that I was in, you know, with my band and mm-hmm. all that stuff. But that kind of caught, that started to sort of break apart after field day. And then uh, I didn't really have a. Oh yeah, I had the. I put a band together after Downtown, 
But when I went in to make that record, I sort of didn't have a band right that minute. Mm -hmm. My brother played on, I think, two tunes. Mm -hmm. That album, I don't know, it's just all over the place. And the T-Bone mm -hmm. Burnett came in, mm -hmm. well, and we finished the record. But it was, you know, session players and stuff. But actually, you know, it was great. I mean, I, mm -hmm. all the all the studio guys that I worked with, it was like I really loved, I really liked that a lot, you know. Good, okay. They were brilliant people, and you know, I just, it just was, uh, it made sense, and mm -hmm. that's what happened, you know. But no, no, nobody ever said, okay, nobody ever really got heavy with me and said, okay, this is what you got to do, because, okay. you know, it just was, I'm not wired that way, you know, you know what I mean? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like as soon as somebody starts telling me how I'm supposed to do something, mm -hmm. then I just immediately rebel, you know. Mm -hmm. I just try. Yeah. I, 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 you know, that's that's a that's a real hot button thing with me. Me too. I know what you mean. <laughs> yeah. I have the same problem. Yeah. Okay. So when you look back then on the on life too short, I mean, are you? I assume you're proud of everything you've done. But do you have any particular thoughts or memories, good or bad, about that one? Life's too short. Yeah, I worked with Ed Stasium. Yeah, that's right. Ed is a great guy, and mm -hmm. uh, it was a pretty. Uh, it was mostly me, you know. I, Played and sang most everything on the record. Played the all the percussion. Did all the background vocals. That was kind of my modus operandi back okay. then. Uh, Kenny Aronoff on drums. That was my idea to nice. bring him in. Uh, that was the second album I did with him. I did, he, he was on my last Warner Brothers album also. Mm, um, okay. Fernando Sanders on bass. Mm -hmm. Me and Ed. Paul Hammingson. It's just like a really small sort of core group. Of people, you know. Yeah. But I mean, you know, like I wanted to get on the radio. That's the other thing. Because mm -hmm. I did want to have hit records. I wanted to have hit singles. I started out, you know, and I had this idea that hits, that that the, you know, ultimate manifestation of rock right. records was hit singles. Mm -hmm. that, that's really how I felt. I thought hit singles were exalted, you know. Of course. And, you know, so, yeah, I mean, you asked about amping it up and maybe there was a, like a little conscious thing on my part because I did want to I did want my stuff to be on the radio okay now you can't always get what you want no you can't always get what you makes me wonder about something you know you're, you're often considered sort of power pop i don't know how you feel about that topic but people like you these classicist songwriters you know these people who take the bones the tried and true bones that have been around since the beginning of rock and they reinvent them in ways you know paul mccartney does it neil finn does it you do it these new and fresh ways and yet in some ways 
it's almost less appreciated, maybe, by uh, by the mass by the masses. And yet, you would think a perfect pop song would be the exact thing that would connect. Do you know what I mean? I don't know if I'm explaining myself very well. Well, you know, it's all just luck of the draw, you know. I mean, really? there's just like a lot of variables, a lot of factors, a lot of. But for with every record on a major label back then, there was some behind the scenes political story that only a few people know about, you know, and it's like, you can't, I think it's just way simplistic to say, oh, well, it was power pop, yeah. so, which it's never, which it isn't, that's like a complete misnomer, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. that's not ever what I wanted to do. To me, power pop is like suburban Anglophile mm. kind of stuff, and I was never an Anglophile, really. Mm-hmm. I mean, I might have been that, but I was other things, too. Yeah. There was always a, I was especially in the beginning, with the first album and with Field Day. I was like really right in tune with what was going on around me in New York. Mm-hmm. Really interested in, you know, like kind of forward-looking stuff that was happening, and I did incorporate influences into what I was doing. They were just like real immediate, really of the moment, you know. Mm-hmm. And I was always paying attention to, to R and B, you know, like power pop is a thing. I'm not trying to be uh, negative or anything, but it's it, to me it's a thing that kind of exists in a little box. Mm-hmm. And I was the I always I was the opposite of that. Yeah. Especially starting out, it was like a forward-looking and backward-looking agenda at the same time. Mm-hmm. I was like, that's that, that was a real crucial thing with me. Mm-hmm. And you can hear it too if you listen to Cynical yeah. Girl. You know, I, I mean, you have to. You might not catch this, but you know, like I tried to copy the the hand clap sound on "Good Times" by Chic, and I had a drum machine for the four on the floor. And oh I, I man! I did everything on that record myself, and but it was like you know, I was trying to do like a like a club record with that one, you know. Really. Did they? Yeah, it was Did like it work? Really important to me, you know. Did they? I mean, do you ever? I don't know. I was pretty young. Did you ever? You know, was Field Day were Field Day of singles ever being played on dance floors and across no, New York? No, they never did. You know, we would pack, like you said, we would pack out all the places in New York uh-huh. where we played. 
but I don't. I never heard a club DJ play any of our records, mm-hmm. unfortunately. But anyway, that's my thought process back then. It was not. It was like again, it was forward looking and, and sideways it. and backwards and every other okay. way. Okay. You know, I'm curious. The changing of labels is that anything that you know a regular person like me, a regular working guy. Is there is there does it equate to somebody you know getting fired from a job and having to go look for a new job and meeting like sales quotas you know and then like well you didn't you know you didn't meet your quota so we're gonna have to fire you from this job and then you go to Razor and Tie and you're on an indie and you know, is is it a similar kind of trajectory do you think to what regular people uh, deal with? Uh, no, not ex- you know it's, okay. it's it's not quite that. I, um, maybe now it would be, or, or well, now I don't know what it is, but True. I do know that uh, around the turn of the century, friends of mine and people that I knew that were working at major record labels suddenly, you know, like there was a like a mass of uh, of uh, mergers and stuff, you know, like mm-hmm. companies being absorbed by bigger companies and within like a three or four year period around the turn of the century, it just was like all of a sudden there were like, instead of a dozen major labels, there were like two, you know, or three. Mm-hmm. I don't know how many there are now, you know, like back in the Soviet Union, there was only one record label called Melodia Records, you know. Oh, wow. And it's like it's getting to be like that now. But, but anyway, um, what I was starting to say was that all of a sudden with the changes during that time period, like people at major labels had to start thinking in terms of quarterly yeah. earnings, and there had to be growth every quarter. Otherwise, there'd be like layoffs and job mm-hmm. cuts and and stuff. And it was just murder on people's psyche, you know. Like yeah. Yeah. there was all of a sudden the business was transformed. Like you know, corporatists came in and just sort of like swallowed the whole thing. And of course, they completely fucked it up. Mm-hmm. Like they fuck up everything, yep. but uh, anyway, you know when I was on Warner Brothers, it, it was a company, you know, and they were, it was a, you know, like they had to make profit, and that, that was what they, you know, that was, it was art and commerce, right. but it was commerce just as much as it was art for sure, or or more. But anyway, there was some license for, like my A and R person in, in New York, I mentioned her before, Karen Berg. She just insisted that I be kept on the roster, you know. Mm. Like, a couple times I asked them to let me out after field day. Mm. I actually begged to be let out of my contract, but it was a five-album deal. And uh, the people that I talked to, I'm not going to name them, but, you know, they were like the higher-ups at the label. And they they said, oh, you know, we we can't let you go. Like, we really believe in you, Mm -hmm. which I think was a lie, but... um, Anyway, it was a five. Album, I signed a five album deal, and they wouldn't let me out even when I asked them to let me out. Mm. And then finally, when the fifth album was done and the contract expired, Karen asked me to stay. She wanted me to sign an extension uh-huh. so they could work the album. And I just said, you know what? I've, I've had it. I don't want to. I don't want to ever see this place again. I'll see you. You know, as long as yeah. you want me to. But. Uh, so I split, you know, like I, yeah. when my contract was over, I, I left. And then a little bit of time went by, and I wound up with the label that I did uh, Life's Too Short with. Mm-hmm. And then after that, 
that was just a one-time thing, and I didn't want, want any more of that after that was over. And then I got out of the major label thing. You know, yeah. I could have gotten mm-hmm. another deal with a major. I had one offer. Oh, but okay. I, I just didn't want it anymore. It was, okay. it was just it was an absurd. To me, it was just a world that you know. It just like a, there was so many absurd things about it always to me. And I just finally thought, well, I, I don't want to do this anymore. Let's do something else. I'm glad you did um, because I love Miracle of Science. That's another one of my favorite albums of yours. Well, thank um, you. Yeah, that's a good one. Okay. Cause see, I uh, this is this is interesting in a way. Um, you're kind. Of, I'm realizing that you, in a lot of ways, are the author of what your career has become. And um, I think in some ways that I don't know that that's always the story that's associated with with Marshall Crenshaw. Any anytime anyone talks about you, it's always always oh, underrated and he's underappreciated, and all of that is true. But I think it sometimes ties back to like you being a victim in some ways of whatever. And maybe there is some of that, but it sounds like you're kind of like you've you've followed the path that you're most comfortable with and it's brought you here and you appreciate, like you said earlier, the maturity that comes from that. So things are good. No one needs to feel like Marshall Crenshaw is a victim of anything. Does that make sense? I guess, yeah. You know, Uh, I mean... (laughs) I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm probably postulating I character, too much. I characterize it that way, you know, because I, okay. I do, I do, I, I do, I have a cool life, you know. You do, and uh, yeah. I've certainly, you know, gone through a lot of ups and downs. I've had some rough years, all that stuff like that. But no, I, uh, you know, yeah, show business was okay. kind of like, but, uh, you know, I mean, I, okay. it's, it would be, it would be just. Really, like a sin to complain, almost. Okay, one other question then about sort of the older days was the how you know so much of you is tied to an image, um, you know the Buddy Holly look. Everyone likes to go back to that. Was that a calculated move on your part? Do you were you knowingly like I'm going to look like my rock heroes, or was it just <laughs> you being you and yeah. people assigned that kind of you know image no, to I you? Just, I just had to work with what I was given, you know. I okay. just had to like, do the best <laughs> that I could. You know, it was like I, I, I had to just uh, again. I just had to do the best I could with what I yeah. had, you know. Okay. Okay. Like I said, you know, like I started to lose my hair. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> a little too soon, you know. Like uh, <laughs> so that that put me at a disadvantage. But yeah. Uh, but that no, I wasn't trying to look like Buddy Holly. If that's what you're asking me, it just sort of—I just sort of looked, however I looked, you know. Like I, okay. I found these—I found these glasses in San Francisco in 1979. They were mm-hmm. uh, British National Health frames called Beauforts. <laughs> they, but they just had them in this optometrist that I went to, and I thought, oh, these are cool. And then I just happened to like to play a Fender Stratocaster back yeah. then, which was what Buddy Holly played. But I mean, a lot of it was just happenstance. But on the other hand, I was I was nuts about Buddy Holly from the time I was five years old, and that's a fact. I really, yeah. really was yeah. a fan of his when he was still walking the earth, and I was just mm-hmm. a child. So uh, any comparison that anybody made, there was certainly some truth to it. You know, I was okay. I was I was definitely drawing influence from from him directly. Okay. I figured, you know, the 80s were so much about image, 
and selling image, going back to the videos and everything. I wondered if that was, you know, like I said, a calculated move, either by you or the label, saying, you know, we've got, like I said, you're a classicist. You sound like Buddy Holly. Let's have you look like Buddy Holly, too. Then we can no, sell no, you as somebody who's as good as Buddy Holly. I wasn't you know? groomed like that, you know. Okay. I just I just tried to look thing. as good as I could. I was, I was really terrified a lot of the time. Anyway, but... Uh, really? Why? I don't know, because it just was like... You know, one year of my life, I was sort of like mostly hanging around with my wife and my brother uh-huh. and then a few other people. And then all of a sudden, my life just kind of blew up. Yeah. And it was it was jarring. But, uh, you know, I just looked back and I realized I was sort of terrified a lot. But it was, it was fun, too. And it was really sure. exciting and fun. Yeah. Okay. You know, one thing I was wondering, um, so many of the... In going back and watching some of your live clips on YouTube, almost all of them, or not all of them, but a lot of them happen on Letterman. And I, I, did you and David Letterman have like a friendship off outside of the show? Did, was he an especially big fan of yours? Do you know? He did. Li- he did like me. Um, Good. But no, I just the only time I ever saw him, of course, was when I was on the show, and I was just for okay. those few minutes. That was the entirety of my. Uh, experience with him but no you know he, he really liked oh there was one time i was over and he you know, he wanted to me he wanted me to do marianne for my first album Nights falling, the wind is calling 
I just, I, you don't see, I don't see any, you know, I don't, did you ever play Johnny Carson? I didn't see any Carson clips. No, we, uh, we never got Carson. We were on okay. Merv Griffin. Oh, we there you on, go. We were on David Letterman a few times. A couple, there were a couple of times when I was, when they called me because somebody else had canceled or they read something about me in the paper and said, oh, you know, you should come on. Are you around? Mm-hmm. And uh, that was the late night one. Okay. But And then I was on the CBS show once. But I wasn't on other. I wasn't on a major label anymore at that point, so mm-hmm. that kind of didn't. Okay. It only happened once. What else? You know, I was on a lot of TV shows. I had this conversation, yeah. had a, this conversation with somebody else recently, but I don't know, like a, you know, like a dozen or a dozen okay. plus. Oh, we were on MTV, like they ran our concerts. Yeah. You know, all okay. that stuff. Yeah. I just noticed a lot of them were on Letterman. Just curious if you guys. If he ever expressed any kind of affinity for you or anything like that? Yeah, it was you know it was the New York show too, and and we were okay. like a New That's York true. thing. That's true. Yeah. So we were we were kind of like local, and we were popular locally, and that makes sense. Okay. So that was it, you know. Maybe if okay. I lived on the West Coast, I would have got on yeah. Carson or something. Uh, but who knows? I have no idea. Yeah. Okay, so I want to talk a little bit about making a living. The way I mean, you are one of the most beloved cult figures, if you want to call it that in uh you know music for the last 40 years <clears throat> with that comes you know perks like being able to co-write a song with the gin blossoms that becomes a big hit or you know doing songs on walk hard with judd apatow or whatever who's yeah. great by the way at bringing shedding light on people like you or graham parker or you know these these great artists that deserve more attention have there ever been i guess the more sensitive question is have there ever been lean years since you became a, pro- a professional musician, have there been times where it, did it ever get sketchy? Like, I don't know if I can keep doing this. Well, yeah, there have been times when it's gotten a little sketchy, but I mean, somehow there's um, <clears throat> like I've never bottomed out, if that's what you mean. Well, I just wondered completely... if it ever, if you just could not, you know, pay your bills as a professional musician anymore. Or if there was always, there, it sounds like there's always been an audience that you could go play to, and at yeah. least, if nothing else, okay. Yeah, somehow there always has been something, you know, like something from somewhere, you know. Like yeah. you mentioned the Gin Blossoms thing and the and Walk Hard. and Walk hard, hard down life. Rocky Road, walk bold, hard, that's my creed, my code. I've been scorned and slandered and ridiculed too, had to struggle every day my whole life through, seen my share of the worst that this world can give, but I still got a dream and a burning race to live. Walk hard, hard When they say you're all done Walk bold, hard Though they say you're not the one Even if you've been told time and time again 
you're always gonna lose and you're never gonna win. You gotta keep that vision in your mind's eye when you're standing on top of a mountain high. You know, like before that, there was La Bamba. Arizona and the gin blossoms 
And she says, these guys just absolutely idolize you. And really, I just want her to stop mm. talking and leave me alone. But uh, she said, oh, they, I'll send you their album. So she she sent me this album that they made. It was just one that they made themselves and, you know, sold at their gigs. But it was an album, you know, like a vinyl album. I still have it. Anyway, the, the, you know, that happened. And then, like, two or three years later, they had a hit record. Yeah. And then I, I went to see them. Uh, at Irving Plaza in New York when they were opening for somebody just to check them out because of this conversation or whatever it was. Yeah. That I but I didn't go introduce myself to them at that gig. I just watched the set and then left. And then the next thing that happened was I heard from Jesse and he just said, well, let's write a song together. Mm. And we talked a little bit more and then we both dis and we discovered that we were both going to be at South by Southwest in a couple weeks. Oh, nice. So we were there and we and we just spent some time on the, working on this tune. But the amazing thing was that they already had, you know, it was it was already understood that whatever song we wrote was going to wind up on this movie soundtrack. Yeah. <laughs> so that was wow. pretty great. It was like I just sort of like I slid into this amazing situation. Yeah. So, you know, it was already in place. They were going to get a song in the soundtrack anyway. But I mean, you know, we wrote this hit song is what we did. Yeah, and and it really blew up when it came out. So that was that was oh. nice. We keep referring to it as time for me. Huh? Yeah, totally. Well, we keep refer. I should say for anyone, we keep referring to it as this song. It's till I hear it from you, and it's off the Empire Records soundtrack. Yeah, I mean, that's got to be a gift. That's like manna from heaven. You you might be going through a little bit of a lean period, and then suddenly the rock gods decide to shine on you, and suddenly your bank account's bigger, and you're getting bigger, you know, more acclaim, and people know your name, and you get to work with people who love you, and that's got to feel good. It does. And, you know, and like just a small number of times that kind of thing has happened to me. Yeah. Where something, where something just blows up, you know, like you've done – Numerous things, but then this one thing just kind of blows up, and it's like, yeah. oh, really? Wow, yeah. <clears throat> you know. But it's, like, it's, just, like, it's just as good that something did, or, yeah. or that some some number of things did. Yeah. You know, I mean, till yeah. I hear from you and like the two or three others that I've had, like hits as a songwriter, it's just been great that I that that they've happened, that they've endured. I did say once on a panel 
at South by Southwest. I said, it's just, I just wish I had 20 more of those, you know, and then I'd be fine. Yeah, but that's, no kidding. But I'm just, I'm just kidding when I say that. <laughs> I think everybody wishes that. Um, you know, while we're talking about the gym blossoms, I want to ask you about a couple of your other um, collaborations, one of which I didn't realize this until recently. Mm. You're on that Was Not Was album, What Up Dog? Oh, that's right. Yeah, I am. I don't even remember the name of the song now. Off the top of my head, I should look it up. bought that when it came out and I still love it and it's so strange and you are not somebody I would have guessed would be on that album of course no one I guess you wouldn't think of Frank Sinatra Jr. either yet there he is how did that happen oh I just happened to be friendly with those guys I mean they're uh Detroit area <clears throat> guys you know like yeah. we all grew up the three of us grew up in the Detroit area during the same time frame. I didn't meet them until we were all kind of out in the world. I met Don Was. He was still living in Detroit when I met him. Okay. And he was producing a lot of English acts, a lot of dance music and stuff. But, uh, you know, like we had a couple of mutual friends from the Detroit area. And, and like, you know, we just kind of wanted to know each other because mm -hmm. I heard their first record, which is a thing called Wheel Me Out. And I, you know, I, I still love it. It's really a, a great record. And, you know, I like, <clears throat> I just sort of knew of him from people that I had known in the Detroit area. And I was like, oh, great. You know, Don Faginson, that's his actual name. And, uh, okay. <clears throat> you know, it was like, I, was, I just got a kick out of meeting him. And we've been friends ever since. And then we're, we're, we're like, we really like each other. And the same with David, you know, there's just like a thing. There's a thing that I have with certain guys like that who are from the Detroit area came out of there the same time I did. There's like a, there's like a sort of a bond there, you know, Yeah. it's just like a homeboy factor or whatever you, sure. want, you want to call it. But sure. I just, I, you know, I got friendly with those guys right from the beginnings of both of our careers or all of our careers. Okay. I was wondering about that one too. That was a pretty big album. I mean, Walk the Dinosaur was everywhere at the time. I don't know if yeah, that and then they had a, was a big they had shot a, in the arm for you. I'm on another one of their albums, too. I got a song that I co-wrote with Don and David is on an album. Oh, you said, you already mentioned What Up Dog, right? Yeah, yeah. That's the one we're talking about. I'm sorry, because there was one before that called yeah. Born to Laugh at Tornadoes. And, uh, That's it. I did yeah. something on that record, too. You did. I don't have that record, so I wasn't okay. familiar with that one. But I do have What Up Dog. So I remembered that. And then you, I believe you're, you tour a lot with and are probably friendly with another one of my all-time favorite bands, which is the Smithereens. And I think you did something, you worked on something of theirs as well, did you not? 
Yeah, the, the first record that they did that that I kind of took note of, I don't know if it, if they'd done any before that, but they made an EP with Alan Bedrock. You, ever, you must have run across that, that name. name. If, you're, yep. if you're reading about my stuff, then you, mm-hmm. Alan Bedrock was, you know, he, he was really the guy that, like, opened the door <clears throat> from everything, you know. Like, yeah. he put out my first record on his label, Shake Records. That just, you know, like, everything kind of gets traced back to Dad and to Alan. <clears throat> but anyway, the Smithereens were... Doing some, an e, they did an EP with him, and I just got invited to come in and play okay. on one of the tunes. I played uh, keyboards actually on the, on this one called "Strangers When We Meet." Keyboards on that? Yeah, and there are two versions. There's the one that they did okay. with Alan, which is on the Beauty and Sadness EP, uh-huh. right? Yep. And then um, they recut the tune for their first album, and that was with Don Dixon. Yeah. You know, who's another friend, and so I got invited to that session, too. I did the same parts, but uh, on the on the version with Alan, they didn't have an actual Hammond B3 I just did it on like some synthesizer, but on um, anyway, yeah, I played on that. And then there's another one called White Castle Blues that I played on. Sure. Oh man. <laughs> so anyway, and I've known those guys. All I've just known those guys right from the start, you know. Yeah, I love them so much. I uh, Jim Babjack and I are trying to find a good time to interview him and get him on the show as well. I just saw them here in Denver a couple weeks ago. <laughs> yeah. Love them. Wow. Yeah. This is all such a long time ago, isn't it? I mean, you think about how the changes that people have gone through sure. since then. And, I mean, a lot of us are still breathing and still getting up on stage. But, I mean, geez, you know. Yeah, I um, <clears throat> I love them so much. And I, I'm really concerned about Pat's health. And uh, Jim still sounds great, but he lost his wife last year. And yeah, that's you just all hope that they can continue on, you know. That's what I'm talking about, all of that. Yeah. Like yeah. oh, oh boy, lordy lord. Yeah. Yeah, it's rough. Um okay. Well, uh so what's the deal? What's what's happening now? Because I know from all the interviews I've seen with you, you ha- it sounds like you have no desire to make a CD, make an album anymore. You just you're not interested. And I know you did the pledge music thing a couple years ago. In fact, I don't collect vinyl, and you're somebody who makes me wish that I did because when I see 
I know you're a big vinyl uh, proponent, and when I saw you on the "What's in My Bag" clip for Amoeba Records, and you're yeah. holding up, you're holding up all these beautiful. I just think, man, I love Marshall. I want to be like Marshall. I want to own what Marshall tells <laughs> yeah. me I should own, but I just can't bring myself to do it because I put my family in the poorhouse. But having said all that, so I didn't think that I could get my hands on all your EPs, but I just bought them all on iTunes the other day. So now I'm I'm up to speed on all of that. Yeah. But what's the plan now? What are you working on now? Well, what am I working on? Let me see. Like I said, I'm still out touring. Mm-hmm. Now, now I really could if I wanted to. I could stop, you know. Like I don't mm-hmm. need any more new songs. A, a lot of and, and, and like when I was on a, I did some tour dates with the Smithereens. You just mentioned that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I did that a couple of years ago, and that was supposed to be like a nostalgia kind of show, mm-hmm. like the Rock of the '80s or whatever it was. Mm-hmm. And uh, I remember showing up for the first gig. And I looked at the you know calendar of events at the venue, and more than half of the things on the calendar were were you know they had to do with baby boomer nostalgia, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, you probably hate lot, that. There's a lot of that going around. I mean, that's sure. really what a lot of show business is right now. Yeah. But uh, you know, like when I did those EPs, it was it was like a really satisfying artistic experience and the way the whole thing was was designed it was like there was always going to be something new mm-hmm. and there was always something that I was working on you know to get the next thing ready and it was really a satisfying project and I also sort of got this really nice collaboration going with Dan Byrne mm-hmm. the singer songwriter Dan Byrne he and I got on a really good role and wrote some songs of mine that are among my very favorites like which one? Name one. We'll play it right here. All of them. I like Driving and Dreaming. That's one of my yeah. favorite things I ever did. Good. I like that uh, one. I've been driving and dreaming Neath the black night sky Eighty miles an hour Still the time drags by Missed on the windshield And my thoughts Driving and dreaming, feeling lost in space tonight. I've been leaving a trail of smoke and dust behind. Flying by and laughing at the speed limit signs. Carrying on the way I've got to. Train, all of them. They're, you know, I just I really love those songs. I love to Good. 
get up on stage and play those songs as I'm like still proud of them. Good. And uh, people dig them too, you know. Like a lot of times, people come to my shows and they're they don't really know the new stuff and they're not really expecting to. But I give you know, I, I, it's always at least fifty percent sort of new newer stuff. Mm. I, don't, I don't ever do like an oldie show. Sure. Anyway, I, right now um, I don't feel uh, compelled you know, to, okay. to make any to make any new records, but that doesn't mean I never will do it. I, I've got this other thing, and if you you know if you're like digging around reading about me, then you might have heard about this too. Is that I'm I've been working on this documentary that I want to make. I don't know if I know about this. What is it? Oh, okay, God, well. Well, I might. Who's it on? What's it on? About three years ago, this friend of mine put up a website about record producer Tom Wilson. And I read this whole website. This guy's this friend of mine who puts up these websites. His name's Irwin Chusid, and he's a you know fairly well-known musicologist. He's a DJ and okay. author and stuff, and a cool guy. I just had lunch with him the other day, and. uh Anyway, he put up this website about Tom Wilson, and I started reading it, and I just got pulled right down the rabbit hole. Really? And uh, Irwin, uh, at the top of the homepage, he said, you know, I'm I'm really hoping that a filmmaker or an author will see this website and then just sort of take the ball and run with it. After a couple of weeks, I just realized that I was seeing the movie in my head. I couldn't get the idea out of my head. Wow. And I decided that I was going to be the one to do it because nobody else was going to, you know. Or didn't, uh-huh. or didn't, I didn't know that anybody was thinking about doing it. And I just felt like this is an utterly vital American story as far as, you know, stories of popular music goes. This is just like a profound one, you know. Uh-huh. And uh, anyway, so I've been working on that. Like for the first, really? For the first year or so that I decided I was going to do it. I just, I didn't have the slightest idea even how to start. So I just sort of pounded away for a while this way, you know, this way, that way, you know, but like all this time I'm kind of thinking about it. And then finally somebody said, well, look, why don't you just get a Kickstarter campaign, Oh, nice. get some money and shoot some stuff yourself. And I did that and it turned out, and I had help too, you know, like for some, from yeah. some cross paths with some really brilliant people and, you know, we uh, I do now. I have about sixty hours of material, and uh, it's, things are looking really good. All of a sudden, I don't want to go into I don't want to go into a lot of detail. No, that's okay. Because nothing's nobody's put their put pen to paper yet. But sure. it's like right right now, it's things are looking very promising. Okay. And, and uh, so I'm I am working on that. In fact, I'm like very sort of like obsessed with it. Honestly, that's amazing. So this yeah. is the creative endeavor that's exciting. Marshall Crenshaw today. Is this Tom? It is. I'm afraid. Oh, that's killer. Yeah, it, oh, it, it could turn to out it. to be. But I mean, Good. Um, again, it's it, this is it's an important story. Sure. Uh, and then so I'm doing that, and I'm and I'm still touring and playing. I, I would lose my mind if I didn't, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> keep that up. I, I have to do that for my mental health. And uh, sure. and then I, I just got. About to get the publishing back on, uh, you know, someday, some way, and all those early catalog 
things, which is a really wonderful milestone in my life. There's other stuff going on too. I forget. There's like now one thing. I was going to tell you when I when I was downloading all of your uh, all those EPs, I came across one that just came out this month called "Thank You Rock Fans." It's just oh, a, yeah, dude, a is this a real album. thing? It's, yeah, it's like it's like a six song EP from back in the day. It's it's awesome. Um, captures you very beautifully from that period. I don't know if this is an official release or one of those things that just kind of gets leaked out or whatever. But it was great. I bought it. I didn't know about that because there was an album coming out by that title, and it's a live album. It's uh, this label called Runout Groove that's putting going to put it oh. out. I think that comes out in the fall. And then oh. the Field Day reissue is another thing I'm really yeah. so happy about. That's great. Can't and, wait uh, to get my hands on that. So there's like okay. a, you know there's a handful of, of things that are going on right now that are yeah that are exciting to me. That's great. Um, okay. Well, look, I want to ask you just. Two last questions uh, that I ask pretty much everybody, and I'm curious. I might know the answer to this one. One is that I'm, I'm curious what your biggest regret might be over your career. If there was a decision that you made, kind of a butterfly effect, that, you know, if you just hadn't done one thing or whatever it might be, that things would have worked <laughs> out differently. Sounds like you might have a few of those. I don't know. But then I also want to know what just your tastiest memory is. The thing that you cannot believe happened to you. Well, there are just like there are lots, you know. Some of okay. them I can't talk about, but uh, okay, got it. Uh, but there, there's one in particular that uh, um, way back in the day, I helped this guy named Alan Slutsky get this book project off the ground, and he wanted to do a book about James Jamerson. Mm. And he called me on the phone out of left field. I don't know how he got my phone number, but because uh, I didn't know him, I don't think. But mm-hmm. uh, anyway, he asked me to help him, and I did. I, I put him in touch with somebody that, you know, sort of like opened the door for the whole thing to happen. Okay. So then, you know, the Jamerson book came out. It was it was a pretty big success. <clears throat> and then, uh, but eight years after that, I heard from him again. And he's telling me this time that he wants to make a film about the Funk Brothers. Mm-hmm. And I thought, yeah, that's a really dumb idea. Well, I mean, like, how would that work, you know? I said to myself. And, uh, But anyway, I mean, it took him a long time. It took him, like, over a decade to really make oh, it happen. Wow. But, you know, you've probably seen... Oh, I have, I have the, the soundtrack of, of it. Sure, yeah, I own the soundtrack. So, so anyway, you know, my wife and I, 
we went to the Woodstock Film Festival to see a screening of it, and they did a Alan did a Q and A afterwards, and then it was all over, and we were leaving. And my wife says, well, where are you going? I says, well, it's over. We're leaving. And she goes, no, go over and say hello to him and tell him who you are, you know? Uh-huh, uh-huh. And I did. And he just, like, threw his arms around me. Really? And he said, oh, look, the the, the New York premiere of the film is happening in, in two months at the Apollo Theater. you got to be on the show and sing a song. And I nearly, you know, flipped when he asked me. But that happened. I, I got up on stage at the Apollo wow. Theater. There are pictures of me. I just saw some pictures a couple months ago of me on stage at the Apollo Theater. Wow. Singing with the Funk Brothers. And uh, that was, at that moment, I looked around and I just said, you know what? I don't care what anybody says from now on. It's like, this is it. My ticket is punched. (laughs) My validated. I really felt that way. I just said, you know, I I, I win. And I don't care what anybody says, you know. Or what anybody ever did say, you know? Yeah. Because I, you know, I, I, it just was. It was. It was amazing to, that I that I was standing on that stage. Oh, I'm so grateful you had that. Oh, that's so great. That's a great story. I ask a lot of people that question, and that's one of the better answers. I love it. You deserve that, Marshall. Thank I'm you. So glad. Sure. <laughs> um, what are, I, I mean, you're married. I think you, I've heard you say you have kids. Maybe they're even into music. Is that right? Yeah, my son uh, has what Don Dixon calls the curse. Uh oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's he's really into it. Okay, how old is he? Uh, he just graduated high school. Okay. Wow. But uh, you know, I don't know what he's going to do. Meeting. I don't know what he's going to yeah. do with his life yet. But he just. Okay. You know, like he got a black belt in karate when he was thirteen, and he. Had three years of classical guitar, and he worked really hard at that. And he had five years of piano lessons with a really good teacher. He worked really hard at that. And uh, you know, he's just he's 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 you know he keeps a lot of things to himself. I don't really know yeah. what his plans are, other than to go to community college in the fall. But okay. you know, he's he's really a great kid. Good. So, uh, but good. he lo- yeah, his music is his thing for sure. Cool. And do you live in New York City? No, we live about two hours north of there. I have a, we have a daughter too, and she's really a brilliant kid. Also, Good. she's not into music, but she's in her own right. She's pretty powerful. That's amazing. Good for you. <clears throat> um, well, I just want you to know how much I love you, Marshall. Thank you for being the person that you are and the artist that you are. It's uh, enriched my life very much. I'm so grateful that I discovered you on the Borders counter in 2000 and I recalled the good review I read of this is easy and that I was able to put those pieces together to become a fan of somebody who has enriched my life so greatly and so I just want you to know that I love you and I thank you that you talked to me oh thank you you know that's incredible and I really appreciate it I hope you know maybe I should have tried to say a few more funny things <laughs> in our conversation. Maybe it was a little heavy, but anyway, thank you very much. I, I really appreciate it. I just have always been curious about your career and the ups and downs and the contextualization of it and how you feel about it and how you mm-hmm. feel about those ups and downs, and I'm really grateful you talked to me about it. I've been fascinated for 17 years now, and uh-huh. now I have some answers, and 
hopefully people hear it and remember how wonderful you are. So, thank you. Yeah, yeah thank uh, you. There you have it, Marshall Crenshaw. So here's the deal. I think people who love Marshall and are fans of him, I think we feel very protective of him. We don't understand why he isn't a household name. And because of this, we we sort of project onto him a narrative that he would probably honestly prefer we not even do it. It means that the record labels are just idiots if they don't know what to do with someone as great as Marshall Crenshaw. It means that the record buying public are morons if they don't see the genius that we all see. And by extension, it means that life isn't fair. And what is God doing if he is not anointing Marshall to be a gigantic star? These are the crosses that we bear. This is the story we place on him. And I realized, as I said in here, that he is no one's victim. He turned out fine. Everything is fine. He was not equipped to have played that game had it been in the cards anyway. And so I came away understanding that I'm the idiot for thinking and feeling all those things. Yes, I wish Marshall was bigger. All of his fans do. But he's great. He's turning out great. And he's fine. He probably thinks I'm an idiot, by the way, for saying all of this. But that's just, that's what I learned. And I'm just being honest with you. So thank you, Marshall, for talking to me. I hope you don't regret it because I love you a lot. Uh, I want to close it out with one of my favorite album tracks by Marshall. This song is called Laughter, and it's off that early 90s album, Miracle of Science. I love this song. I love that. I love almost everything he does. So please check him out if you're less familiar with him. I don't know how to give you a teaser for next week because I cannot decide what I'm going to run. I honestly have about four or five interviews that I've been sitting on for about two or three months. Some of One or two of them are with pretty big names. One or two of them are with sort of super obscure people. And then there's a couple mid-levels. Uh, some of them are really good. Some are just so-so. I have not decided what to put out yet next week, so I can't help you. Maybe you tell me what you want to hear, and I'll, I'll try and accommodate it. You know the business by now. You can find us on Facebook and like our page. And you can send me a message on there if there's somebody you want to hear from. I've mentioned before, I honestly have so many interviews either in the can or coming up that I'm probably booked through the rest of this year. But you're welcome to send it and I'll get it to I'll get to it as soon as I can. You can find us on Twitter at the Hustle Pod, or you can send us an email at thehustlepod at gmail.com. Uh, and also just go in and subscribe, look through the archives, see if there's other people you love. If you're new to this, Go in and see what else we've done that you may like and check us out. Write us a review if you're up for it. Huge thanks, as always, to my right-hand man, Jan the Man Makevich. Love you, buddy. Thanks for everything. Folks, we will see you next Tuesday. Thanks, everybody. we